It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Uh, well, if you uh, have your Bibles, Judges chapter 6, <clears throat> uh, we're going to be looking at the name Jehovah Shalom, uh, which is God is peace or God our peace. And uh, just super excited to get into this. Uh, over the years, I've done several studies on the concept of peace, uh, whether it's in Ephesians or in a Philippians. <clears throat> and uh, as I've been working through this, it's been really fascinating uh, because <clears throat> there's been some layers uh, to this idea of peace that just because I've never studied the judges stuff, I uh, had never seen. And uh, what I'd like to do, just even just to get started this morning uh, with this idea, is I want to actually just read the passage with you in the book of Judges and then kind of flesh out this idea of shalom or the idea of peace. And so <clears throat> I'm going to get into the story, but to set the stage, if you know the, know the time of the Judges, uh, the time of the Judges is not a good season <laughs> in the life of Israel. Uh, several, I think it's twice, the statement, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, uh, is in the book of Judges. In other words, everyone's just kind of having their own righteousness, everyone's doing their own thing, uh, seems like everyone's living by sin, and what you see is that pattern, that circular pattern, where it's like people walk in rebellion, they go into slavery, they cry out to God and repent, and then God delivers them, and they just over and over go into this pattern, uh, which, as a reminder, is not the pattern of Christianity. <laughs> Judges is not our pattern book. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of things we can get out of the book of Judges. That's not one of them. <laughs> Don't follow Judges. Uh, what's interesting <clears throat> is in Judges chapter 6, it's, it's the beginning of the story of Gideon. And it says in uh, Gideon verse 1 and 2, it says that Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. And what you begin to find is that, again, Israel has rebelled, Israel is doing their own thing, and what begins to happen is they fall under the hand of Midian. Uh, in fact, in Judges 6.6, 6, it says that uh, uh, Israel was brought very low. Oh, I just read this. Uh, Sorry, I combined two passages on the earlier one. Uh, this, this is what verse 2 says. And Yahweh gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So then in verse 6, six uh, chapter 6, verse 6, it says Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. So you, you have this idea that for seven years, they're under this great oppression of Midian. They begin to cry out because they realize, okay, this is not good. And so Yahweh's going to do something. Uh, God is going to step in. And, and perform something. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 11 down through verse 24. So it's a big section, uh, so stick with me. But I think it'll be just rich to see the whole concept. And, and before we even do this, I should give you one quick warning. Uh, in the passage, uh, it says, the angel of the Lord came and said, the angel of the Lord said these things. And I have purposely chosen, so don't yell at me, but I have chosen to change the word angel to messenger. Because in both Hebrew and in Greek, the term, though we translate it often as angel, just means a messenger. And I find that, especially in the Old Testament, I think that is super important because there are angels in the Old Testament. So I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, we have very clear and angels, for example, in the book of Ezekiel, we have the cherubim, right? In Isaiah, we have the seraphim. Uh, but what's interesting is that there's all these encounters of people with angels 
And as you get into the story, what you find is that it's not an angel. It's actually God himself. And so I think sometimes the way we retranslate it as angel uh, kind of skews our thought process that we think it's some angelic being. And then it gets weird because as the angel is talking, right, and we would call it the messianic or the, uh, the Christophonic angel is the typical term, where as the angel is talking, you find that it's actually Yahweh who is talking. And if you want my personal thought on the matter, I genuinely think it's Jesus. And because that is, he's the visible representation of the invisible. He's the only one of the Godhead you can see. So if God is in the flesh wrestling with Jacob, I'm presuming that had to been Jesus because Jacob did not wrestle with an angel. Jacob wrestled with God himself, which is just a cool thought. So anyway, all that to be said, in Judges chapter 6, I'm purposely changing angel of the Lord or angel of Yahweh to say messenger of Yahweh strategically, because as you get into the later parts of Gideon, what you find is that it's not an angel. God himself is the one standing and talking to Gideon. And you can do whatever you want with that theologically, uh, but that's the reason I'm changing it. So I put it in brackets. Everyone okay? Okay. So here's Judges chapter 6, verse 11. So again, uh, Midian has come in and taken over uh, Israel. And it says this, Then the messenger of Yahweh came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to preserve it from the Midianites. Now think about the scene. Here's Gideon, and because of, and what we find out in the few verses before this, is that Midian is so numerous that they're like the locusts. Like you can't count, like a locust swarm. Uh, they're, they're like the grains on the sand of the seashore kind of thing. That they here, here, here are the Midianites, and they're just taking over everything. They're taking the crops. They're just they're they're abusing Israel, if you will. And so what you see Gideon then doing is he's threshing the wheat and he's trying to hide it down in a little wine press, which is not that impressive uh, in terms of trying to hide things. But do you, you get the picture? Gideon's afraid. He's hiding. He's threshing wheat. And it says that the messenger of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wondrous deeds, which our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Then Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this strength of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? But Gideon said to Yahweh, O Lord, what have, what, with what shall I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the least of Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But Yahweh said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall strike down Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then do a sign for me that, is, that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you, and I will bring out my offering and lay it before you. And God said, I will remain until you return. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah flour, and he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. And the messenger of Yahweh said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the messenger of Yahweh put the end, put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the messenger of Yahweh went away before his eyes and Gideon saw that he was the messenger of Yahweh and he said, oh, alas, 
O, o Lord Yahweh, for now I have seen the messenger of Yahweh face to face. And Yahweh said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and named it Yahweh is Peace. To this day, it is still an Orpah of the Abyssalites. Isn't that an incredible passage? Hi, I really find it interesting that here, here is Yahweh, the messenger, uh, and he comes to Gideon and says, oh, you mighty man of valor. And isn't it hilarious? That is not what Gideon is. In fact, it's quite the opposite of what he is. And I, just a few, this is totally a rabbit trail, but isn't it fascinating that even though Gideon is not demonstrating the reality of a mighty, valiant warrior, God actually saw that inside of Gideon and was calling that forth. And I love the fact that, and we'll get into what Gideon's name means in a little bit, but the fact that it's totally opposite of who Gideon is. And I, I love this idea that God is rewriting something and he's calling Gideon up into something. Uh, here, here's, what a, here's, here's what Tony Evans said in, in his book on the names of God, speaking of Jehovah Shalom. He said this, Gideon experienced this name of God, Jehovah Shalom, when he experienced God's presence. He found peace knowing God was near. He built an altar and named it Peace. Uh, one, one scholar said it this way, re referencing the altar thing. He says, in gratitude for what he had received, Gideon replaces the makeshift stone altar of verse 20, which is that place where he put the bread uh, and, and the, uh, the little sacrifice, with a more permanent purpose-built one and gave it a name that encapsulates in two words all that he has experienced, Yahweh, who had appeared to him, and Shalom, the life-giving word that has been spoken to him. So in other words, what, what he's saying is, isn't it neat <clears throat> that though it is in one sense a name of God, it's actually the name of the altar that Gideon is reminded of who is sending him forth in peace. It is Yahweh who is my shalom. It's the Yahweh shalom concept. So as you get into this passage, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it's super interesting. Here is Israel fully surrounded by Midian. Here's Midian coming in and ransacking Israel. Gideon is hiding and God calls him forth and says, hey, I want you to go and I want you to be the judge. And I want you to deal uh, with the Midianites. And Gideon's like, I don't know if I can do this. And God says, you can because I will give you peace. In fact, I am your peace. Which then begs the question then, what is peace? What is this idea of shalom? <clears throat> and, and I've mentioned this before uh, and I've, I've tried to express it in different ways. Um, but in the midst of studying this and reading through different books on the names of God, um, I had, I just came across some great quotes and I figured maybe I'll just let other people try to explain, explain it. And then, then I can blame them if it doesn't make sense. Uh, so here, here's a couple just quotes <clears throat> in terms of shalom. Uh, the first one I want to give you is from Tony Evans and it's basically setting the concept <clears throat> for the fact that we live in days that are not peaceful. In other words, if you're going to look at our culture, if you're going to look at the days in which we live, Chaos, uh, anxiety, fear, turmoil is probably a better way of expressing the days in which we live. It's not peaceful. But, but listen to what he says. Uh, he's talking about the, the turmoil around us, but then he says that the worst uh, turmoil of all often takes place in one's own soul. This happens when you can't seem to live with yourself, when your own pain, anxiety, depression, and regret eat you up, leaving you with an unsettled ache. You are at war within. Whether it's in the heart, the home, the church, or the broader society, 
turmoil rules today. It threatens the structure of normalcy, burdening our emotions, our finances, or our ability to cope with the pressure. Some people don't use the word turmoil these days. They just say drama, which I thought was actually a great way of expressing this. We live in a world of unending drama. Our lives are full of drama, our own or other people's. We don't desire this drama, but once it's there, we're not quite sure how to get rid of it. Even though we experience turmoil on so many levels in our contemporary world, turmoil itself is nothing new. The search for peace and tranquility spans ages and cultures. I thought that was a great statement of just how he's wording the fact that (laughs) we're living in a rather chaotic reality. So what's the opposite of that? What What truly is shalom? And what you're going to find is that shalom is not the removal of the circumstances. It's not the removal of the crazy. And I want to flesh that out a little bit, but, but here's what Anne uh, Spangler said in her book. <clears throat> she said, shalom is a Hebrew word so much richer in its range of meanings than the English word peace, which usually refers to the absence of outward conflict or to a state of inner calm. She says the concept of shalom includes these ideas, but goes beyond them, meaning, now get this, meaning wholeness, completeness, finished word, perfection, safety, or wellness. The fruit of that peace is harmony with others, prosperity, health, satisfaction, soundness, wholeness, and well-being. Shalom conveys not only a sense of tranquility, but also of wholeness and completion. To enjoy shalom is to enjoy health, satisfaction, success, safety, well-being, and prosperity. She goes on and says, shalom is a common term for greeting or farewell in modern Israel. When you say shalom, which is the typical greeting, right? Shalom, shalom. Uh, When you say shalom, you're not simply saying hello or have a good day. In its deepest meaning, it expresses the hope that the person you are greeting may be well in every sense of the word, fulfilled, satisfied, prosperous, healthy, and in harmony with themselves, others, and God. And then she explains, explains the progression of all this. She says, the New Testament further develops our understanding of peace by revealing Jesus as the source of all peace. Though we were alienated from God because of our sins, Jesus reconciled us, making peace through his blood. Peace with God produces peace with others and peace within ourselves. When Christ's kingdom is fully established, all strife will cease, and those who belong to him will enjoy forever the fullness of peace, the health, the wholeness, the well-being, the tranquility, the satisfaction, the safety, the prosperity, and the perfect contentment. Uh, Nathan Stone in his book on the names of God says this, the various shades of meaning contained in this world word all indicate that every blessing, temporal and spiritual, is included in restoring man to that peace with God that was lost by the fall. And maybe to summarize it, Tony Evans says this, peace is bigger than calm, The word shalom means wholeness, completeness, or well-being. It means having things properly aligned and ordered. Or as we would say today, peace means no more drama. It means harmony and balance. It means more than just feeling good at a particular moment. It even means more than happiness. Happiness depends on what happens. Not so with peace because peace isn't tied to circumstances. A person who is at peace is stable, calm, orderly, and at rest within. Or the tranquility on the inside eases your mind despite the chaos on the outside. I don't know about you, but that just sounds delightful, doesn't it? 
that regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, that there is this wholeness, there's a completeness, there is a well-being, there is a rest, regardless of what is going on around us. Uh, it's interesting as you look at the idea of the word peace throughout the Old Testament, it's used in a variety of ways. For example, it's used as a greeting or a farewell, and it's still true today in Israel, right? You go up to someone and say, hey, shalom, and then when you say goodbye, you're saying, hey, shalom. And uh, the whole idea, again, is not just saying, hey, uh, it's not like the Italian word ciao, right, where you just, that means everything, right? You know, how's your day? What do you want for breakfast? I'm doing great. How's your mom? Like, it's just, it's just one, if you know one word, you know all Italian. Uh, seems, seems to be. That's not true, okay? But <laughs> seems like how they're using it. It's not quite that idea with shalom in Israel, but the idea is when you greet someone, you're saying, hey, I, I want the fullness of God's rest and his well-being and his presence with you. Well, then how do I say goodbye? The same thing, shalom, that, that I'm sending you off with, with, with our God. So it's used as a greeting and a farewell. It's also used in the sense of, a, of welfare, and there was this asking how someone is doing. And so when you would ask someone how they're doing, you're basically saying, hey, how is your peace? Uh, for example, in Exodus 18, verse 7, it says that Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their shalom, their welfare, and they went into the tent. Wouldn't that be neat? Instead of saying, hey, how are you doing? Wouldn't it be great to start asking the question, how's your peace? That's such a neat idea to me. Uh, one of the other ways it's used is in the idea of the absence of hostility. In other words, it's, it's a removal of the enemy faction. But that sometimes conveys the wrong idea because even if the enemy faction is there, which we're going to look at in the Gideon passage, do you realize you can still have peace even though you're still in the midst of the Midian stuff? But there is this idea of a removal of enemy faction. There's also this idea of uh, peace in the sense of relationships. And there was this characterized by friendship or care or loyalty or love. In fact, several times in the Old Testament, the term close friend is actually how the word shalom is translated. So in other words, I came up and I saw my close friend. I saw my shalom, the one who actually gives me peace. Uh, it's also used in the sense of an inauguration of covenants to, to formalize the, uh, the existing relationship of love and loyalty. So you'll notice that in the giving of covenant, covenants, this word is often used as well. But here's the idea. God himself is perfect shalom. He doesn't just merely have shalom that he gives. He, that's true. But he himself is perfect shalom. I, I really, really appreciate what Nathan Stone said in his book on the names of God. He said, Jehovah in his own person is perfect peace. This he must be if he used to be the source of peace to mankind. He could never give to others a peace that passes understanding if he were not perfect, unfailing peace himself. This is our hope and our assurance. Isn't that a great idea? It's because God is perfect peace that he can actually give us the peace that passes all comprehension. And as you begin to work through this in Scripture, uh, let me just give you a few passages and most of these are in the New Testament, but you get this idea that our God is a God of peace. And again, a lot of this is referencing the reality of Christ. But Romans 15, 33, now may the God of peace be with you all. And I want you to notice in these passages as well, how often this idea of shalom shows up. In other words, you'll have this idea of covenant or this idea of completeness. And in several of these passages, I think it's super significant that it's Paul's saying, I want this God of peace to actually be with you. 
that the, the, the prayer of his heart is that you wouldn't just go off on your own, but that the God who brings forth shalom is the one who's going with you, which I think is really important for the days in which we live, that we actually, because we are dwelt by the Spirit of the Lord, actually have the God of peace living within us, and he is always going with us. Uh, or in Romans 16, verse 20, he says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Or 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers, rejoice, be restored, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Or Philippians 4, 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Isn't that interesting? Again, it's a different word, but there's the idea of completion or fullness or wholeness contained in that word shalom, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews 13.20, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus. Do you realize that the one that goes with us, the one who is peace, actually is, if I can give you a different name of God here, is Shar Shalom. Do you realize that our Jesus, who is the God of peace, one of his names in Scripture is also the Prince of Peace. Or the prince of completeness, uh, the, com- the prince of soundness, uh, the prince of wholeness, if you will. And this comes, this reference, the prince of peace or the shar shalom, comes from the, that phenomenal passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, listen to what Isaiah says. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name, and there's a whole list of names. Ready for this? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, each of those names are profound in their own. And I love the fact that even the Trinity is is exhibited in this passage of Isaiah. Right? We know that the Holy Spirit is the Counselor. And yet, the name of the Messiah, Jesus, his name is Wonderful Counselor. Isn't this phenomenal? Uh, mighty God, eternal father, Jesus, the son, his name is eternal father. And so you have this idea of the merging of the whole triune Godhead thing in this phenomenal passage of Isaiah saying that, again, it's, it's we have one God, right? Th- three persons, but one God. And here's Isaiah saying, oh, do you realize that the Messiah who is coming is Yahweh himself? He is this God. And he is, his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Isn't that great? There's no end to the increase of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, then, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, you move into the New Testament and uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, hearkens back to this passage, speaking of John the Baptist. And, and listen to what he says. In Luke chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 67, it says that his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and if you get into later prophecy, verse 76, it says, and you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. And then here's this Isaiah stuff. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. So you have this idea that what is John the Baptist doing? John the Baptist is paving the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah's prophecy is, again, quoting that passage from Isaiah 9, as saying, do you realize that, oh dear John the Baptist, you're actually going to be leading people into the way of peace. And isn't it a phenomenal thought that's actually what John the Baptist was doing? He was literally pointing people to the one who is peace itself. He was constantly saying, that's him. That's the Messiah. That's that Prince of Peace that we've been waiting for. That, that is the Shar Shalom. That, that is Jehovah Shalom. That, that is peace itself. And John the Baptist was leading them unto peace. Isn't it a neat thought that on the birth, you know, on, on the day that Jesus was born, that the angels were in the sky? And listen to what they said. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Do you realize for the first time, peace is now truly, fully available? Why? Because the one who is peace has been born. So I want you to grab a hold of this idea in terms of this idea of shalom and this idea of peace, that God gives peace. God delights and desires to give us peace, but he does so by becoming our peace. In other words, he doesn't just give you a pill called peace. And, oh, finally, I got some peace. (laughs) It's not how God functions. Well, how does God give me peace? Well, God gives me peace by becoming my peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He is Jehovah Shalom. And so if he's going to give me peace, he gives me himself. There's a great passage in Psalm 29, verse 11, that says, Yahweh will give strength to his people. Yahweh will bless his people with peace. Well, what is that blessing of peace that is to come, Jesus. That the blessing of peace that, that is promised from Yahweh is that he is going to give himself. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but I want you to see this principle of peace. In Scripture, disobedience and sin disrupts peace, but obedience and righteousness brings it. In Isaiah 57, verse 20 and 21, Isaiah records, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and, and, and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Do you realize that if you are walking in sin and unrighteousness, and you've not experienced the reality of Christ, you will never truly experience peace. Why? Because you're actually keeping it at arm's length. If you don't want Jesus, he is peace. You will never experience peace outside of Christ. Uh, Paul quotes this idea from Isaiah in Romans 3, verse 17, and he says that the path of sinners, the path of the wicked, of peace they have not known. Or look at what Isaiah 48, 18 says, and it's also mentioned in Hebrews 7, 2 and James 3, 18, this concept. But in Isaiah 48, it says, if only you had paid attention to my commandments, says God, then your peace would would, would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Isn't it a phenomenal thought that if we would just walk in obedience, if we would embrace the one who is peace, the reality is 
is that his peace in our life would be like a river, an, an unending flow of this gushing peace. And I don't know about you, but I, I want that. So what do I need to do? I need to embrace the one who is peace. So how, how do I experience this? Look at what Paul says in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that you need Jesus? That is through faith and that salvation through Christ that you finally get to experience true, genuine, deep peace with God. Uh, Jesus tells us in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And you realize that if Jesus actually gave us his peace himself, there would be no reason for your heart to be troubled or you to be fearful. Why? Because you have the God who is the fullness of peace now indwelling your life through his spirit. Paul in Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the spirit, right, is not something that you produce. It's the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace. That peace is something that actually comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I love this idea that when Peter was first preaching his message to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, it says that Peter opened his mouth as saying, I most truly comprehend now, he's speaking to the Cornelius thing. He says, I most truly comprehend now that God is not one to show partiality. In other words, oh, this is not just for the Jews. This is also for the Gentiles. But in every nation, the one who fears him, God, and does righteousness is welcome to him. As for the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, listen to this, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Do you realize that Peter's like, oh, I got it, I get it. Peace is not just for us, the Jews. That peace is for the nations. Why? Because that peace is through Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus, we now get to experience the God of peace. Uh, in studying Ephesians, I really love this idea. Uh, there's this progression of peace mentioned in chapter 2. And I'll just highlight this really quick. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he, Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace. And if you want to go deeper in all this, I've got sermons on, on all these stuff. Uh, but Ephesians 2.14, think about this. Jesus himself doesn't give you peace. He is your peace. And then in the next verse, it says in verse 15, so that, he, so that in himself he might create from the two, the Jews and the Gentiles, one new man making peace. So the one who is peace is making peace. Isn't that awesome? And then he gets in verse 17 and quotes it twice or uses the word peace twice. Uh, and again, it's quoting a passage in Isaiah. But he came and preached the good news of peace to those who are far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the one who is peace is making peace and now proclaiming peace. Why? Because he's the peace. So what is he doing? And he's not just trying to get you on a beach to drink lemonade. Like, that sounds peaceful to me. 
Like that sounds amazing. I don't know about you. That just sounds really nice. Not, maybe not in the summer where it's like 100 degrees in Florida, right, with all the humidity. But I'm talking like perfect 70 degrees, cool ocean breeze, glass of lemonade, and a good book with my feet propped up and just hearing the waves rolling in. Oh, that sounds very peaceful. But that's not what God is doing. God is not trying to remove my circumstances so I can feel peace. God wants to be my peace regardless of the circumstance. Do you realize that God will often not remove your circumstances, but rather he actually wants to give you peace amidst your circumstances? And I think that is so profound in this idea of peace. Because I think in our, especially the culture in which we live, we're we're trying to get out of all of our problems. And we presume that Christianity is a removal of difficulty and hardship and suffering and persecution. And yet those are the very things that Jesus said you would receive if you're a believer. Christianity is not a removal of problems, right? Christianity is not come to Jesus and suddenly you have like, you know, sunflowers and rainbows and skittles falling from the sky. That sounds wonderful. But it's, it's, not, it's not sitting on the beach having, you know, a cup of lemonade. That, that's not peace, well, what is, what is peace? It's actually the presence of your God in the midst of every circumstance you face. And you are promised hardship and difficulty and trials and suffering. And yet, do you realize in the midst of all of that, you can still walk and have peace? Why? Because it's not a removal of the issues. It's his presence in the midst of the issues. Uh, in the upper room scene, I love what Jesus said to the disciples in John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And then listen to this. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. See, it's not the removal of the tribulation. It's not the removal of the pressing and the suffering and the hardship. It's the fact that Jesus wants to be your peace in the midst of that. As you go back into the Judges passage, find it really interesting. And it creates a framework where I book ends to the passage. But in verse 11, let me just read this again in Judges 6 verse 11. It says that the angel or the messenger of Yahweh came and sat under the oak that was in Orpah. So here's Gideon and he's in this location. Hey, the Midianites have, have been causing destruction and, and the Lord shows up in the middle of that. And at the end of the passage in verse 24, It says that Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and named it Yahweh is peace. To this day, it is still in Orpah. And scholars say, isn't it interesting that this creates the framework or the bookends for this entire section, which tells you something. Do you realize that God showed up to Gideon and didn't remove the Midianites? That God in the midst of the Midianites said, I will be your peace. And I will, I will cause you to be a mighty warrior, a valiant man of God. Oh, so, so God, you're going to remove all my problems. No, I'm going to actually have you walk in valor and triumph in the midst of the Midianites. And I'm going to perform a great feat in the midst and through you so that you actually know that you can trust me. But do you, do you see that the peace of God, his presence came not by removing the Midianites, the peace came while he stayed in that same location. And there was peace in the midst of the chaos. There was tranquility in the midst of the turmoil. I think that's, I think that's profound. Because I don't know about you, but 
I so oftentimes want a removal of my problems. And what I think God wants to do in the middle of my problems is to say, will you actually walk by faith and trust me? And would you let me be your peace? Would you let me just be your calm? Would you let me be your rest? And that even though there's this ocean of chaos around you, could you actually just be at rest? I was studying when I was working through the mindset of a, of a Christian. I was looking at Philippians 4. And let me just read a couple of these verses. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I was trying to wrestle with the language in this passage. And the way that I was starting to, to articulate it is, do you know what God actually wants us to be? God wants us to be an island of tranquility amidst the oceans of turmoil. Because again, it's not the removal of circumstance idea. That in the middle of my circumstance, Paul says, do you know what God wants to do? This peace of God, which surpasses all understanding and, and comprehension, I actually want to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard literally means a sentinel. It's like putting up a military force around a city. Do you realize that in Jesus, his life, his peace, actually wants to guard your heart and mind? And could you imagine walking into any scenario in any situation and having the presence of Christ, his shalom, literally be the sentinel of your soul and just be your peace regardless of what is going on around you? Now, here's what I find really, I just find this super fascinating in light of all of this. The word for anxiety there, that, that word anxious, it, it means an inner turmoil. It means a care, a concern, or a worry, or a fretfulness. It means an unquietness in the Greek. But the root word of that word in Greek for anxiety means to be cut up into little tiny pieces. Do you know what anxiety does to us? Anxiety cuts us up into little tiny pieces, doesn't it? That when you're worried and when you're walking in anxiety and fretfulness, do you realize that what's happening is that you're distracted, you're, you're being split, you're divided, you're, 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 you're in multiple places, you're, you're, you're cutting into little tiny pieces. And so I was pondering that and I came across the definition for the name Gideon. This is super interesting to me. Do you know what Gideon means? Here's what the exhausted dictionary of Bible names defines Gideon as. A feller, a cutter down. <laughs> this is a funny term, a cutter down. A one who cuts down, a hewer down, a cutting down. He that bruises, a great warrior. Now, the great warrior comes because that's what Gideon became, right? So that, that was the name. Uh, but, but here's what one scholar defined his name or fleshed it out. That his name means hacker, but it's derived from the Hebrew word that means to hack or to break in pieces. Do you realize that what Gideon's name actually means is to cut into little tiny pieces? Which is the Greek understanding of anxiety. Do you realize that's actually what Gideon was doing? That he's hiding in a wine press, he's trying to th thresh his wheat, and what is he doing? He's walking in foreboding and fretting and worry and anxiety. So what does he need? Peace. That he's actually walking in the opposite of peace. In fact, his name, if, if I may 
extrapolate and, and stretch it just a little bit, has this idea of not just cutting down like pieces of, of or like timber, that he himself is being cut into little tiny pieces. And Paul says, but we should not be anxious. There should be no circumstance that's causing anxiety, rather in everything, by the presence of God. That whole idea of prayer, right? It's the whole idea of intimacy and communion with the living God. So rather, nothing in my life should be producing anxiety. Everything in my life should be pushing me into greater intimacy and relationship with Jesus. I find the story of Gideon incredibly fascinating at this moment because here is Gideon who's been cut into little tiny pieces inside and in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the chaos, God shows up and says, peace. In fact, let me be your peace. Do you realize that Gideon went forth from there? And I understand there's the whole fleece thing after this. But do you realize that Gideon went forth from here and actually was valiant in battle? Uh, right, the very next scene after this is that he goes and tears down all the altars of Baal, which is an interesting contrast because he builds an altar to Yahweh and calls the altar peace. And then he goes and like confronts the cultural gods and cuts down the, all, all, all the altars of Baal. And then as you go into the whole scene, if you remember the story, here's Gideon, he has 30,000 warriors and God says, that's too many. And I would have been like, no, 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 we don't. We're already outnumbered. But do you realize that if you knew that God was your peace, you would actually be okay with God trimming down your, your forces. And then God brings them even more down to 300. And then what, is, what does Gideon do? With the promise that God is his peace and the fact that the presence of God is with him, Gideon with 300 people goes against over 100,000 Midianites and God brings a great victory. Why? Why could Gideon go into those kind of situations where it seems like this is absolutely impossible, where there's only chaos and fretting and foreboding? Well, it's because God is his peace. Well, how did Gideon have his peace, have the peace of God? It was the presence of God. And the same thing is true in our lives. So I try to summarize it by saying that this way. Gideon was promised by Yahweh to have something that his name and his nature was opposite of. Rather than hiding and threshing wheat in a wine press, God was going to give and be his peace. That idea of wholeness, completeness, finished word, perfection, safety, or wellness, making him into a mighty warrior. Here's what Tony Evans said about this scene. Oh, not about the scene. Uh, Tony Evans was given this great illustration. I was reading it this morning. I was like, I like this illustration. So I, I'm borrowing Tony Evans' illustration. So listen to how Tony Evans gives a story of of peace. He says, one day two artists were, I can't say this word, but they were commissioned to paint a picture of peace. The one who painted the best, uh, best picture would win $250,000. That's a great, I can finger paint. I could probably lose, but I'd try. Uh, so Evans goes on and says, as you can imagine, both painters attempted to paint the finest painting they could. The first painter set to work by creating a serene portrait of a lake with the sun glistening off of it just at the right angle so that it sparkled across the top of the water. The purest blue shade lay across the top of the water, complementing the blue sky. The artist added a young girl skipping near the lake with a yellow balloon securely fastened to her wrist. Trees towered gracefully on one side of the lake with birds gathering in the tallest branches. After completing his painting, the painter leaned back and took a deep breath of satisfaction 
In his mind, he had betrayed peace that was sure to win the prize. The second artist had a very different idea in mind when he painted his image. In his painting, the sky was pitch black. Lightning zigzagged through the air in unpredictable movements. This painter also had water, but the waves in his painting roared as if they were somehow awakened from a terrible dream. Trees bent and bowed, whining in the wind. The painting looked more like a portrait of disaster. But all the way down at the bottom of the left-hand side, just near the very edge of this horrific scene, a little, song, or a little bird stood on a rock. The little bird had its mouth open, singing a beautiful song. One faint light shone down on the bird as it sung in spite of the situation all around it. The second painter won the competition. The judges chose him as a winner because he showed the truest manifestation of peace, a well-being that resonates from within despite what's going going on all around. Being at peace doesn't mean being calm. This is the conclusion. Being at peace doesn't mean being calm when everything around you is calm. When all is calm, you're supposed to be calm. Being at peace means you're at rest even when everything else seems to be all wrong. With God, you can experience peace in any situation. Without Him, you can spend whatever you want, go wherever you want, do whatever you want, but you won't have peace. The best you'll get is a deflection of life's anxieties or diversion or distraction from them. If you want to know true well-being and wholeness despite life's circumstances, you must be in God's presence. In His presence, all odds change. All expectations change. All outcomes become dependent on Him and are not limited to what you can rationalize. Not a great, I like that illustration a lot. Because again, I think of peace, I think of like, oh, beach, lemonade, calm waves. But true shalom is the presence of God in any circumstance. True peace is allowing an inner calm to actually invade your life regardless of the outer chaos. So look at this passage again. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Be anxious, be cut into little pieces for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, let everything push you into greater relationship and prayer and intimacy with God. And that peace of God, which goes far beyond all of your understanding or comprehension, will, will be the guard or the sentinel of your heart and your mind. How is this done? It's through Christ Jesus. We need that, don't we? That regardless of the circumstance, could you imagine if nothing in your life produced worry? That'd be inhuman. Actually, let me restate that. I think that would just be Christian. Wouldn't it? Could you imagine nothing in your life producing fear? Nothing in your life producing anxiety? Nothing in your life producing foreboding? Nothing in your life would cause you to be down in a wine press threshing wheat? Why? Because you actually knew that The presence of the Lord, who is your peace, lives inside of you through his spirit. We didn't do well a couple years ago in COVID. Uh, The the church was just as chaotic as the world was, sometimes more so, (laughs) I think. But what would it look like regardless of the circumstances around us, regardless of those oceans of turmoil, what would it genuinely look like if we had 
Yahweh our peace in every circumstance. That we would actually have an inner rest and calm. That there would be a completeness and a soundness and a fullness and a well-being which cause just a deep inner rest and trust. That we weren't being cut into little tiny pieces. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, Paul kind of gives you a hint at how to do this. He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. Listen to this. But the mind set or fixed on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you realize that the only way you're ever going to walk in peace is when you allow the one who is the Prince of Peace to invade your life? And then Paul says, what you need to do is fix your mind, fix your gaze on Jesus. Because it's when our mind is fixed on the things of the Spirit that we experience life and peace. Wouldn't it be neat to hit hit, hit like a reset button in our lives where the default setting for our mind is actually Jesus? Because what begins to flow out of that is a river of peace. That you find that, uh, there's an illustration that I really appreciated that was like, I don't know if you've had this experience I'm getting old enough, and now I'm starting to experience it, and it's driving me crazy. But I've had my alarm set early for, for so many years at Ellerslie that now, though I still set an alarm because I'm scared the one day I don't set, it'll be the one day I needed to be here on time, and I finally get to sleep in. Uh, but for like the last, I think it's been like the last almost, I don't know, 16, 17 months, I think I can count on maybe two hands how many times I've woken up with my alarm. I've been waking up at least 20 minutes, but typically an hour before my alarm every day. And it's driving me insane because uh, apparently I'm not learning whatever lesson the Lord's trying to teach me. Uh, but I think at this point, I, I've gone up so early so often that my body just has a new, new reset. It just wakes up early, whether I want it to or not. Wouldn't it be neat though, if we had that with the peace of the Lord? That we, we, we have to almost diligently fix our eyes on, on the Lord. We have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And it's, it's like having an alarm clock for years and years and years, but after a while, that's just the natural. And your body just naturally dwells upon the Lord, and your mind just naturally just fixates upon Christ. And wouldn't it be neat if in the middle of all that you experience true life and peace? And yeah, there may be a diligence and a discipline on the front end, but I think it'd be so phenomenal if I was so constantly setting my mind on the God who is peace, that, that I was experiencing his peace, that that just became the default setting in my life that it was just the normal, that I'm just constantly walking in life and peace. Why? Because my mind's always on Jesus, and he is the fullness of peace. He is Shar Shalom. He's that prince of peace. He is Yahweh Shalom. He is Jehovah Shalom. He is the God who is our peace. Do you know what we need to do? We need, we need to fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to be our peace. In Isaiah, I'll just close with this, in Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, The steadfast of mind, you, O Lord, will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The, The New King James says it this way, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I really like what the New Living says. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. 
Do you realize it's, it's the fixing our gaze upon Jesus that causes us to trust him more? And the promise in Isaiah is when I fix and when I, when I keep the steadfastness of my mind on him, it actually causes me to trust him more, which actually allows me to walk in perfect peace. Not just experience a little tiny bit of peace, but I get to experience perfect, the fullness, the whole completeness of shalom in my life. Why? Because he's that which I'm fixed my eyes to. Or as Paul said in Romans, that when I set my mind on the things of the Spirit, what flows out of that is life and peace. So here's just two quick questions. Would we allow God's peace through his presence to be the sentinel for our soul? And is it possible for you and I to live as an island of tranquility amidst the oceans of turmoil? In other words, could we trust our God? Could we fix our gaze on Jesus and realize that Jesus is peace in the flesh? That he doesn't just want to give us peace. He wants to be our peace. But we're going to have to walk in obedience and righteousness. We're going to have to keep our gaze fixed upon him. But there's a beautiful promise that if I would just keep my gaze on him, that the steadfast of mind, the one whose gaze is fixed on him, we will trust him and we will walk in perfect peace. We need that. Okay, maybe you don't need that. I need that. But I'm presuming if I need it, you need it too. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we do need peace. But Lord, we don't want peace apart from you. We don't want peace as an abstract thing separate from you. Lord, we want you to be our peace. Lord, could you somehow cause our gaze to be fixed steadfast on you? Could you just capture and captivate us to such a degree that we are just overwhelmed and it's not the removal of the problems. It's not the removal of the circumstance. It's not the removal of the chaos. Lord, it's your presence in the middle of it. Lord, could we have an experience like Gideon that, that being surrounded by Midians and, and, and we're all cut to pieces on the inside full of anxiety and fretting and foreboding. Could, could you, through your spirit, just declare to our minds, our hearts, and our spirits that peace is available? In fact, you just want to be our peace. And Lord, I do pray that you, the God of peace, would be with us. But more than just a peace that surrounds us, Lord, we need an inner peace that indwells us, which you readily give through your Spirit. So Lord, I, I ask that you would give us that completeness, that soundness, that wholeness, that fullness, that rest, that finished work within us that it's because of you and your righteousness and because of your salvation that we experience the reality of genuine peace in a world that is full of chaos and turmoil and drama. And Lord, the solution to my problems and the solution to my chaos and the solution to my turmoil is, is not a removal of those issues as much as it is I need you to be peace in the middle of those issues. So Lord, if I'm feeling cut to pieces. Lord, if I'm walking in fear or worry, Lord, my solution is you. And Lord, I do pray that for whoever is listening, if there's distraction, if there's worry, if there's foreboding, if there's fear, 
if there's just the stress of all the circumstances that's just cutting them to pieces, Lord, don't just give peace. Be peace. Don't just remove the circumstances. Would you, would you prove yourself and prove your faithfulness and prove your trustworthiness as you are our peace in the midst of the, in the, midst of the crazy So, Lord, would you allow us to live as believers, as islands of tranquility in the midst of a turmoil of uh, the the oceans around us? And I, I I just pray that when the world sees our lives, they see genuine, full, whole peace. And that they are so dumbfounded by how we can walk with such a steadiness and a movability, a rest, that they are compelled to know you. Because the only explanation for the peace in our lives should not be our personality or our whatever, it should be because you are so clearly demonstrating your life, your presence through us, in us. And so, Lord, we just say that we need you. Come and be peace, shalom, in the fullest expression in our lives today. And Lord, we thank you that you are the Prince of Peace that you are the one who reigns and controls and rules the fullness of peace because you are peace. So Lord, we just entrust ourselves and our circumstances, our situations and our problems to you and say that we trust you regardless of whether the problems stay or whether they go. But Lord, we know that we can be mighty, valiant warriors triumphing in the midst of the problem, not because we're talented, as Gideon said, he's the weak and the least of his entire clan and tribe. So, Lord, this is not about us. This is not about our strength. This is not about our ability or our personality. This is, we need you to be our peace in the circumstances of life. So, Jesus, use these little vessels and shine forth you, yourself, to a world that desperately needs shalom. Thank you. We love you. In your precious name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.